Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. Now, I've got a hunch that just because of the title of this podcast episode, it's going to make for a popular listen. Eat to beat your diet. And I say this because I've been looking at some recent statistics, which I will share. Firstly, over in the US, 52% of people between the ages of 18 to 34 years old have tried a diet in the last year. 43% of all women have dieted in the last year, compared to 34% of all men. And across in the UK, a survey commissioned by the British Nutrition Foundation revealed that 62% of Britons have made a change to their diet to get healthier over the past couple of years. And according to the most recent NHS health survey that I could access, around two thirds of the English population aged 16 or over are overweight or obese. Now let's be honest, being on a diet can wreak havoc on our mental health for many different reasons, some of which we're going to go into in today's conversation. Sometimes you can't help but wonder who is in control, you or the food that is calling to you. Dr. William Lee is an internationally renowned physician, pioneering researcher, scientist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, The Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments for more than 70 diseases. And his TED talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer, has racked up over 11 million views. Dr. Lee's newest book, eat to beat your diet, burn fat, heal your metabolism and live longer, which was released just over a month ago, is extremely likely to be just, if not more, successful than the first. In the book, Dr. Lee suggests 150 delicious foods to add to your diet, explaining exactly how they will help to heal your metabolism and reduce unhealthy body fat. Psychology is an important aspect of all behaviours and weight loss is no exception. In this fascinating conversation, complete with a show and tell, Dr. Lee explained to me how by eating well and taking back control of your eating window, you can master your cravings, lose harmful fat, increase your lifespan and overall health. Dr. Lee also shared some groundbreaking new research on metabolism, shattering the myth that some people are born with a higher or lower metabolism than others. This was so, so interesting to get into and we really only had enough time to scratch the surface. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome Dr. William Lee to the Happier Life Project. I kind of want to start with knowing what you had for breakfast. Ah, well, since it's still morning here yeah, and I um, have an interesting uh, pattern of eating that I have just um, adopted over the course of my life and I know it's really great for my metabolism, I wake up in the morning. Um, mm. It is around 10 o'clock in the morning here. Uh, I wake up in the morning, I take my time getting ready. And then I'll actually go out and uh, go for a walk, which I, which is what I just came back from. I'll read mm. a book, I'll check my emails, and then I will um, usually sit down and have something very simple. So um, I have in front of me a cup of coffee, which nice. is actually, you're, you're seeing my breakfast, and then I also <laughs> have something I'm going to have afterwards, which is a pear. And um, that's probably going to be my breakfast. And I eat a light breakfast. I specifically don't do what my mom told me to do when I was a kid, which yeah. is hurry up, get up, eat some breakfast and get on the school bus so you can run off to school. And, you know, all of us are used to the eating patterns that we've developed over the course of our lives. Um, mm -hmm. It turns out that 
the longer you, for me, I mean, this is based on science, the longer that you wait from waking up to actually having a meal, the longer you give your body's hardwired metabolism a chance to burn down extra fuel that may have accumulated from the day before, the day before, and, and effectively you're improving, you're streamlining your metabolism during that mm. period of time. So my overall pattern of eating is, you know, I, I, say, I say for me that, that you know, you're, you're opening up a, an interesting can of worms, which is not <laughs> only what I have this morning, but, you know, uh, how do I eat and when do I eat? And, and, then, and then kind of leading to the what do I eat? You asked the what, but actually what's important is, is sort of the general pattern. Yeah. So I'll tell you the night before, the, the evening before this, I had dinner. I put my, uh, around seven, I put my dishes away at around eight o'clock in the sink. All right. Um, and after that, I didn't eat anything else. No, I didn't snack. I didn't have a midnight snack, a bedtime snack. I didn't nosh throughout the evening. I was done. All right. Now I, I went to bed around 11 okay. and that gave me three hours of no food in my body. Just naturally when I'm done with my dinner, I'm done with my meal for the evening. Kind of like when we were kids, we didn't have access to all the pantry quite so easily. I went to bed around 11-ish last night. I had about three hours of no food in my stomach. And that allows my metabolism to start kicking the gear uh, away from storing energy to burning down energy. And then I slept eight hours. Mm -hmm. And that entire eight hours where I was not eating and I was sleeping, I was able to burn fuel. My metabolism is actually doing its natural thing. And then when I got up, um, at around seven this morning, and now it's 10 my time. So I've gotten three extra hours. So if you do the math, three hours before bedtime, eight hours uh, of sleep, that's 11 hours, plus now three hours, um, uh, 11 hours plus three hours is 14 hours. I have effectively not had food in my body. That's more than half the day that my body's own hardwired system is burning down extra fuel that's actually how i keep my metabolism kind of well groomed let's put right. it this way and, and i will i'll eat a pear i'll have a lunch i'll enjoy my food during the day i do know that intermittent fasting is that right but more and more people are doing it for me my thoughts are when you're telling me all this gosh is he not mm -hmm. starving because i would be famished right now this is a great point you're raising everybody <clears throat> every individual is a little bit different Mm -hmm. So your body and my body are wired a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, there are other people who may be watching or listening to this who actually are struggling with metabolic syndrome or they may have diabetes or they may have some other uh, health condition where their own needs are, are going to be a little bit different. But in general, I can tell you that part of our being famished is partly how we're conditioned to think. Uh, there's a clock mm. in our body, in our cells, called the circadian rhythm. That's why we get jet lagged, all right? Circadian basically refers to daytime and nighttime and the internal clock. We don't have an Apple watch inside our body, but we actually have a much better watch. And it's our, every cell can sense what time it is in relation to um, what time you did something the day before. So when we're used to eating early, mm. okay, um, just like when we're used to exercising at the same time every day, when we get off that cycle, it takes a little while. Our, our body expects it. And so when you uh, say you're famished, yes, I think when I probably started doing this many years ago, and it was not, this is not a trend or a fad or kind of like an extreme thing, a diet that I program I went on, it just became naturally to me, actually. And so I was a little hungry in the beginning, but actually, if you push through it, mm -hmm. then the le le next day, you're a little bit less hungry, the next day, you're even less hungry. And then before you know it, like you're, you're just, you're happy to wait. You're, I guarantee you, your body has plenty of fuel from the night before that you haven't actually fully consumed while you're sleeping. So that in the morning, although you feel famished, it's just your brain being used to actually eating. So what I write about in my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, are ways that we can actually elevate our overall health without yeah. stressing out. Okay, so we can actually find ways to enjoy our lives, be happier, knowing a couple of things. Number one, that we can embrace our favorite, uh, our dietary patterns. We can actually embrace our food. Yeah. We can love our food in order to love our health. And secondly, knowing that we can also love our health as well 
being confident, being more confident to know that how we're living is not um, sort of um, uh, secretly harmful to us, but actually in the background is really helping to feed our our own health. And so prompt that you just asked about what did I eat today has now yeah. led to this like larger conversation is, you know, how can we eat in ways that are not what society is teaching us to do, which is to fear our food, to be really regimented, to try to find a formula that everyone should fit to, and mm-hmm. then to, to sort of feel guilt, shame, or fear. Yeah. And I don't believe that this the science, the good news is the science tells us we don't need to do that. We can actually reorient our entire thinking and love our food to love our health. I'm so glad you brought this up because it was in, uh, it is in my notes to ask you about in terms of mental health and food and even the word diet and obviously that's in the title of your book and I know because I've you know enjoyed the book that you're not a fan of diets if we're using it in that sort of the cultural way the way of like being on mm-hmm. a food plan shall we say but yeah in regards to because we are part of a mental health app and again, it could be opening up another can of worms here, but like mental health and being on a diet, even that is a, sometimes we're not doing it. In fact, a lot of times we're not maybe doing it to become more healthy, to live longer, to beat disease. We're doing it because we want to get into those genes because we've got an event coming up. And then these diet plans, I think they do wreak havoc on our mental health because we can't necessarily stick to them or we're miserable on them. So I'd love to know your thoughts on all of this, please. Yeah, no, Gabby, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. For the first of all, my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is actually, um, even though it's got the word on, a, uh, on diet on the cover, if you read it carefully, it's not a diet book, it's an anti-diet book. I tell you how you can beat the need for a diet and how the new science of metabolism, because I'm a scientist, I'm, I'm a doctor, and so this mm-hmm. is an area that I actually do research in, which is metabolism. As it turns out, you know, we have so many misconceptions about um, our metabolism, about body fat, appearances, about um, how food connects to that. And as it relates to mental health, which is, you know, absolutely central to our ability to be happy and to live fulfilling lives, let me kind of tell you what the research actually shows. First of all, Mm -hmm. our metabolism is hardwired in our body the same way that it is hardwired as an operating system into a laptop. So if you went to the Apple store and I went to the Apple store and we bought the same computer and we plugged it in and booted it on, the operating system of our laptops, even if we lived in different places and bought it from different stores would work exactly the same way. And this is now what research has revealed about human metabolism. We are not born with either a slow or a fast metabolism. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say that, Mm. oh, my sister was so lucky she was born with a fast metabolism. She's never had to struggle with weight in her life. She could eat anything. Me, I actually have a slow metabolism. Not true. It turns out we're all born with exactly the same metabolism. It's hardwired into it. And it makes a lot of sense. Our immune system is hardwired into us. Our heart the function of our heart and our circulation is hardwired into us. And so it makes total sense that when we come out of the box, when we come out of our mom's womb uh, on day one, we are all hardwired to be the same way. Okay, so one of the things that's really important is how stress can affect our metabolism. Now, mm. let me just kind of set the stage because stress comes from anxiety and fear and you know, uh, uh, you know, all these things that can um, be impacted and that are part of being uh, sort of mental uh, health off the rails, right? Um, So let me first explain something. Um, Mm -hmm. Metabolism, not only are you born with the same metabolism, but research just less than two years old has shown that over the course of our entire human lives, over our lifespan, all people, all humans go through four phases of metabolism. And, And you might be surprised to hear about it. From zero to one year old, our metabolism skyrockets. It's like a rocket ship going up. In fact, at one year old, our metabolism is 50% higher, more elevated than what, what, what our adult metabolism is, which is why it's so important to feed infants, you know, um, and, and to treat infants in, a, in the best way possible in the first year of life. From one year old to 20 years old is phase two. Here, metabolism goes down, 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 down. Surprising because anybody who's looked at teenagers will say, Oh, they're eating two or three dinners. They're bouncing off the walls and they're sprouting like beanstalks. So they must 
be having a higher metabolism, right? Wrong. The research shows that during adolescence, our metabolism is declining to adult levels. Really interesting. This is actually from wow. research that was just two years old, 6,000 people from 20 countries all studied in exactly the same way. It's a big reveal that that's like pulling the cloak off of the statue of David, you know, and, and really seeing what our, our metabolism is really truly like. Okay, now here's the mic drop finding, all right? So phase <laughs> three, from age 20 to 60, right through adulthood, right through middle age, right through childbirth, menopause, 40s, 50s, and 60s, right through that period of time, our metabolism hardwired to be rock stable. It does not automatically decline. And yet everyone believes that when they reach their middle age, their metabolism is gonna slow down and they're gonna start to change their body shape, right? Yeah, yeah. Turns out that's not true. The operating system of our metabolism is hardwired, designed to be rock stable. It's actually reassuring to know that that's actually what, how we come out of the box. This is our program, all right? Now it's true, we do get derailed. I'm gonna come back to that and why and how stress plays a role into that. There's yeah. a big important point to answer your question. That's the third phase, big surprise. And the fourth surprise is that in phase four, from 60 to 90 years old, all right. Now, by the way, this research study that I told you that defined all this, 6,000 people from 20 countries, they studied people two days old, two days old to 90 plus years old. And they found that from 60 to 90, you have about a 17% decline in your metabolism, only 17%. So that when you're 90, if you're lucky to live so long, your mm -hmm. metabolism will be only 17% lower than when it was at 60 or 20. That's how we're hardwired. Okay. All wow. these things... And I'm looking at your reaction, and this is the same reaction I had, which is like, yeah. really? Oh my gosh. And this is hardcore scientific discovery, less than two years old. I can tell you that the power of these discoveries is causing all the old textbooks of metabolism to be ripped up and thrown out the window. The new textbooks are still being written. So what we're talking about right now is a reveal that hasn't even hit the textbooks yet. But this is actually what, as a researcher, that I've actually am involved with. So then the next question is, all right, why do um, we all see physically that when people reach their middle age, their 40s and 50s, and mm -hmm. why do women who hit menopause, why do they actually change in shape? Why do they start struggling with their weight, gaining weight? What, what actually happens? Well, this actually comes right back to what you asked me, uh, which is about stress okay, and mental health. It turns out mm -hmm. when we reach our middle age from 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, all right, when we meet that, that sweet spot of middle age, that's when life happens. Life happens meaning we have all kinds of stressors. We've got job stress. We've got relationship stress. Those people have children have kids stress. You might have financial stress. You might be stressed out by the state of the world, the war, the pandemic, the climate. And as stress builds onto us as adults, it changes our brains, okay, uh, and, and how we perceive things. And it also changes our behavior. So we might be more in a stressed out state where we actually have more stress hormones being secreted from our brain on a continuous way. I mean, who isn't stressed from hearing all this 24 seven news cycle bad news? Everyone's right. stressed. What happens yeah. is that that actually starts to change our behavior. It, it starts to derail our metabolism. We start reaching for some of those ultra processed foods. We start snacking in ways that are not so healthy. And what we do is we gain body fat. We gain extra body fat. Now, this research is really profound because it shows, you know how we always believe that, well, if you're born with a slow metabolism, then you're going to actually gain extra body fat and gain weight. It turns out that's not the truth, the actual scientific truth is just the opposite. Our metabolism hardwired to do exactly what it's supposed to do. And when we undertake behaviors and respond to stress in ways where we start to have stress eating, okay? Mm, um, and mm -hmm. don't exercise as much, don't sleep as well. Maybe harbor anger, you know? So many people have chronic anger, Urgh, okay? All those things build up internal stress that magnifies the external stress we feel. And what that does is that derails our behavior. We start to grow extra body fat. When we grow extra body fat, 
it's extra body fat that suppresses, shuts down our metabolism. It's not the metabolism causes gain body fat. It's that fat slows down our metabolism. So that is actually a profound thing that our mental health, our mental wellness, whether we're happy or satisfied or content or relieved or calm can make a yeah. huge difference in terms of whether or not we gain extra body fat, especially in those middle age years. I mean, you are blowing my mind right now, Dr. Lee. So the emotional eating and yeah, we don't go through a whole bag of carrots because we're super stressed or we're heartbroken or whatever, right? It's like we want the Doritos or the fries or whatever. So it's our reaction to stress that makes us crave the bad food that makes us gain weight. So it's not necessarily, because not everybody craves the bad stuff when they're stressed as well. Some people go the other way, don't they? And they yeah, yeah. can't eat. Well, but we also, when we're stressed, not only make, tend to make poorer decisions in terms of food, which is amplified by all the marketing and the very clever industrial uh, kind yeah. of like the, the sirens of, of, of ultra processed foods. But when we're stressed, we also tend to exercise less. Some people yeah. will go the other direction, but most of us, you know, what might be less physically active. And then when we're stressed, we also sleep more poorly. Now during sleep, our body, our hormones and our metabolism resets itself. And so when you don't get good quality sleep because you're stressed, depressed, anxious, angry, all those kinds of emotions mm. that also prevents our metabolism from working as well so all these things conspire food is a very important part of it okay but so is physical activity uh and and on the quality of our sleep so you know you know i always say eat move sleep and smile these are the four kind of concepts that's really important for our overall health and yeah. all, our, our overall wellness and, and you just brought up this whole idea about you know, our, our mental health, our mental wellness. And, and by the way, you know, when we, when we use the word mental health, oftentimes the, because of the way it's been referred to, I think in the media, we think about depression and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I like to actually maybe massage that word a little bit to say, you know, we, we're all, we should all strive towards mental wellness, even though when we mm -hmm. think about mental health, we're thinking about disorders of our, of our mental well-being. I, I think we should really all gravitate more towards mental wellness, which then feels a little bit more welcoming, as opposed to mm -hmm. being associated with the diagnostic psychiatric criteria. Mm. Well, I can't help but think about book number one, which was Eat to Beat Disease. You actually touched upon in that, didn't you, that consuming some of the particular foods could help with certain mental health illnesses. And then it was writing this book and then the reaction it got and the feedback that you got when people were starting to say they were feeling better and they were losing the pounds. This kind of, I guess, gave you the, the motivation to write eat to beat your diet and to kind of get into this further? Yeah, well, so here's basically what happened. So I'm a researcher, I'm a scientist, um, I'm what we call a vascular biologist. So I study blood vessels. Blood vessels are the highways and byways for all the oxygen we breathe and all the nutrients that we eat. The blood vessels, our circulation takes all those things to every cell and every organ in our body. So critical for health, I study health. And I also know exquisitely what happens to your health when we have dis disturbances of our circulation. It's not just a heart attack, but everything from your mental wellness to your kidney function, to your ability for your liver to detoxify, all those things are impacted when our blood vessels are not healthy. Now, my research has led me over the recent years since my first book to examine metabolism, because what I was curious about when I finished my first book and I released it, I thought, what's the next level of health that we all want to aspire to? Where do we go next after mm -hmm. better immunity, better circulation, you know, um, stronger genetics, uh, epigenetics, um, our better gut health, like, and having our stem cells revitalize our bodies better? Where do we go next? And it turns out that one of the unifying platforms that all of those health defense systems I just mentioned are linked to is our metabolism. And I realized as part of my research that we have all these misconceptions about our metabolism and the research on metabolism I described with that 6,000 person study mm, have been yeah. changing the frontier so dramatically. 
I thought I want to write about metabolism because that's what I want to study. Now, one of the big surprises for my first book, Eat to Beat Disease, is I put in a, a list of more than 200 foods that activate your health defenses, help you develop better immunity, help your circulation, help you regenerate from the inside out. And I'll confess as an author, as the book came out and had great reception, I was a little bit concerned, this is I'm confessing something to you, that well, maybe people will start eating with gusto and maybe they'll gain weight. And that's not what I intended to do. Might this have been an unintended consequence of me talking about the benefits of eating delicious foods? Right. Well, so I almost like was waiting with bated breath to see <laughs> this unanticipated side effect, but it never came. In fact, yeah. what I got, I got letters and emails, thousands of them from people that said they felt more empowered, they were enjoying their life more. Some of them even came off their medications. They felt healthier. They felt more vibrant. And then I started to get a few emails that said, hey, by the way, oftentimes this is a postscript, a PS. They'd say, oh, by the way, Dr. Lee, I also have to thank you because I'm starting to finally lose weight in ways that I could not lose with when I was on my diets. And I feel great as well. And mm -hmm. I'm also losing weight. So thank you. And when I got the first one, I thought, you know, that's nice, but probably coincidental. And then I got the second and the third. And then I got dozens of very similar notes in different ways saying that these people were, that my readers were actually able to shed some pounds. And they weren't going from being morbidly obese to runway model thin. They were just shedding pounds in a healthy sort of way that made them feel better feel better inside, feel better in terms of their, their own emotional state, and also be healthier overall. Blood pressure is going down, et cetera, et cetera. Blood sugars are getting better. And so I thought, wait a minute, how could that be? You're eating food and losing weight. Shouldn't you be eating food and gaining weight? Just the opposite of what I was fearful of. And then I started to dive in to look at what's inside food. And I shared with you this pear that I'm gonna eat um, shortly. And it turns yeah. out that as an example of the research, and by the way, I'm going to show you a couple of other things. Here is a, I just happen to be in front of a table with demo. Here is a chili pepper. Okay. okay. Yeah. This is from a chili pepper I, I picked up from a market uh, in Venice, Italy once. Um, a pear, a chili pepper. Oh, look what I have here. I'm going to show you this. This is the kind of research I've actually been doing. A jar of capers. Okay. okay. Now, yeah. what was really interesting is that by diving into the foods, I study food as medicine. I realized that there are substances in foods like a pear that actually activate our bodies, not just health defenses, but activate our metabolism. How does it work? Well, it turns mm -hmm. out, for example, pears have a lot of dietary fiber, makes our gut healthier, better gut health. Better gut health is better metabolism, more efficient metabolism but pears also have a substance called chlorogenic acid. Chlorogenic acid, which is found in pears and coffee, all right, activate our body's um, brown fat. Now, brown fat is actually a kind of fat in our body that burns extra fuel. And when it mm -hmm. burns extra fuel, it's kind of like a space heater. When, it, when it, you ignite your brown fat, here's a brown fat ignition, right? Like a torch, <laughs> all right? When you're igniting your brown fat, I'm in front of a demo table. You've got all the props. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I teach a course. And so ah, I, I happen to, okay. I, I'm, I'm doing this in front of my table. And as we're talking, I'm like, oh, you know what? I just, why don't I just show Gabby? I appreciate it. Yeah. When you actually turn this, <laughs> this, this flame on, okay, this is your brown fat. This pair mm. will turn on the, the brown fat. All right. The, the chlorogenic acid. Where do you think that energy comes from? The fuel for the brown fat. The brown fat draws that extra energy from your white jiggly fat that you don't want, the harmful visceral fat. So in fact, you can actually eat foods that will turn on good fat to fight bad fat. When your bad fat levels go down, your metabolism starts to rise back to its operating system level. So mm. what prompted me to write this book was this incredible discovery that most many things that we used to think about our metabolism research is showing to be not quite true or completely false. And so we're beginning to have a new science of the metabolism, a new realization of how our health actually works at that next level, okay? Um, number two, even better news is that the foods that we love, whether it's a pear or a caper uh, or, or chili peppers, 
there's more than 150 foods I write about in my new book. Um, they all burn harmful body fat. They turn on good fat to burn down bad fat. Think about this. You can eat food that will not make you fat, but will ignite your good fat. You can eat foods to fight fat by prompting good fat to fight bad fat. It's a chess yeah. game that goes on in your body that we didn't know about. And you can eat foods that turn the bad fat into good fat as well, right? That's right. Like, for example, tomatoes, which I love, um, contain a natural bioactive called lycopene. Now, lycopene does a lot of great things. It can starve cancers. It can actually protect your DNA from ultraviolet sun damage. For example, it can protect your skin. But lycopene also dissolves in your fat when you eat a tomato. It goes right to where you want fat to be fat, which is your thighs, your butt, your belly. Okay. And there, kind of like a heat-seeking missile, once it's inside your fat, it begins to convert the harmful fat into useful fat. It turns white fat, jiggly fat, into brown fat. It makes more of that space heater ignition type of fat, which then can be recruited to fight more harmful fat. So here we are having gone into a society that uh, has trend and fad extreme diets. You must eat like this, you know, like mm -hmm. be a robot to do this. And it's all often about elimination, restriction, deprivation. Okay. That's why people yeah. have trouble sticking to diets. Human nature abhors deprivation. So when you say you must not do this, you might stick with it for a little while, but eventually it's going to be hard to really sustain that extreme behavior, which is why most diets fail. What's really amazing is this idea that there are foods that we eat that we actually enjoy. Tomatoes, pears, chili peppers, olive oil, avocados. If you um, eat the seafood, you know, clams and mussels and shrimp and crabs, all these foods, of course, the green vegetables in the produce section, all these foods have different mechanisms. They can either turn on your brown fat to burn down harmful white fat, the jiggly fat, they could actually um, just make fat grow more slowly, so it's harder to gain weight. They can actually convert the bad fat into good fat. They can actually turn them. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in Star Wars, turning Luke away from the dark side back to the side of goodness. It's, it's really amazing, all these things that are present in food. So when we mm -hmm. talk about food as medicine, and this is my area of research, we're beginning to realize that there's actually a whole new dimension of food as medicine as it relates to fat and metabolism. And we can now align them so we can love our food to love our health by improving our metabolism while we fight harmful body fat. And this, by the way, can happen at any size, whether you have a big size body or a slim body, because even thin people need to worry about extra body fat. Right, yeah. I think a big problem, and going back to the stress thing as well, it's the comfort eating at night. And it's just that kind of voice, isn't it, that's like calling you about whatever you've got in your cupboard. So sometimes, especially if you've got little kiddos, then it's, you know, it's impossible to not have some sweet treats in, or maybe you've got a partner with a sweet tooth, whatever. So in terms of like not reaching for one biscuit, which turns into 10, What's the answer there? Well, so, you know, in my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, well, let me explain to you. So the third part of my book actually has some principles and guidelines to help everyone figure out how to move towards a healthier everyday pattern that's very reasonable for anyone to do. But I do want to mm -hmm. say, if you buy my book, read the first section, because it really talks about these jaw-dropping discoveries about metabolism. The second section is really about the foods. And I wrote it for my reader as if you were sitting in my, shop, in my shopping cart in a grocery store or in a supermarket, the way that we were kids and we used to ride in our mother's shopping mm -hmm. cart and she was pushing us around. I take you through and tell you what you can actually put into the cart that's good for the metabolism. The third is really where you're getting to, which is, all right, how do you put this all to work? How do you get this to work in everyone's life? And what I basically suggest is not trying to do everything all at once. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is not about an extreme diet. This is about first self-knowledge. First, figure out how you're living your life presently. I, I suggest something called food journaling. A lot of people don't do this, but whether you take a little notebook out or whether you take a scrap of paper or whether you put it in the notes section of your, of your mobile phone, just record every time 
you encounter food and you put something in your mouth. What is it? What time was it? What is it? And how much did you eat? Okay. And what I encourage people to do is to do that for a week. There's no judgment. There's no do what just live the way that you normally live and just record it. And then at the end of the week, you get to look back and say, how do I actually navigate my life? What actually happened in the last week? And when did I eat? And I think a lot of people would be surprised at how um, mindlessly they were putting food into their bodies and how much that they were actually eating. So the quality will probably of the food that you've eaten might be a little eye-opening, um, mm. brow furrowing, and the amount that you eat might also surprise you. You know, recognition, you know, for like anything else in mental health and wellness, you know, recognition of what an issue might be is the first step to actually getting moving forward. And so by recognizing what your own dietary habits are, food, but through a food, food journal, it can really eye open. And then what, once you know what you're doing, it's easier to say, you know what, I'm just going to actually start to commit myself to not doing certain things. And the first step I suggest in my book, it has to be fit, tailored to everyone's personal schedule, is I call them um, uh, figuring out when you're going to open and close your windows. So, you know, just like in a house, when you actually, it's the spring is out, you're going to open your windows and get some fresh air in, and then at night you're going to close it uh, at the end yeah. of the evening. Um, okay. So when do you open and close your eating windows? So figure out what time you want to open your window to eat, begin eating food in the morning. And what time do you want to close your window so you're not eating anymore? By this idea that opening and closing the windows is that gives you your fences, your perimeters, your time to be able to mm. eat is a really useful framing of what time you should be eating. So that often is a good next step to be able to control that late night snacking because as long as you are aware that you're doing it and then you say you're going to decide that you're not going to do it, then you know you can even set an alarm on your phone, for example, so that um, when you're finished eating, whatever time you're normally finished eating, your food journal will reveal that. You just mm -hmm. basically set an alarm at whatever eight o'clock in the evening to basically say that no more food tonight, please. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just a reminder. These little things, everything that's healthy has got to be tailored for the individual. And that's what the other part that I read about in my book, You To Beat Your Diet, is this is not about an extreme diet. This is really about getting to know yourself, understanding the principles of helping your body's hardwired metabolism do its thing on your behalf. And then making small adjustments at the beginning that will have a big impact. So if you don't have a, if you don't nosh on food and go to the pantry late at night and you eat adequately at dinner time, you know, you might have to smack your hand once or twice, um, mm -hmm. uh, your own hand, um, uh, in the first couple of meetings. You will see how quickly your body adjusts to it. Again, it's sort of that circadian clock, something your brain's been trained to eat late at night. So the alarm in your brain is going off. After a few days of not doing that, your brain will retrain itself. So it's all very, very doable. The key is not to stress out about it. Mm. I met up with a friend a couple of days ago and I hadn't seen him in six months and he looked great. And he'd actually really gone, gone for it in terms of like improving his own health. And we were talking about the kind of mental health benefits he'd experienced as well. Mm. And something that just springs to mind when I asked him as well, what about the, you know, the sweet treats and the kind of late night snacking? And he was like, you know, I just made a decision that I wasn't going to be a slave anymore to my own mind. And I thought, oof. Exactly. That's pretty powerful stuff there. Exactly. Yeah, no. And, and this is what happens. Like, I think that if we can actually make those small adjustments we will all look and feel a lot healthier, which is what we're all craving, right? I mean, everyone mm -hmm. really appreciates and is grateful for being in a state where we're feeling better. By the way, I'll tell you another thing that's important for me mental wellness. It's also gut health. Now, many of us have heard, you know, it's really trendy now to talk about gut health and gut microbiome. Well, I actually studied the microbiome, so I know something about it. Inside our gut are healthy bacteria. And the healthy bacteria turn out to be a very important signal to our brain for our mood. When our gut is healthy, um, here's how it works. We've got, 40, mm -hmm. about, we've got about 39 trillion bacteria in our gut. They all function as, like an, as an ecosystem where they're cooperating and collaborating with each other. It's a friendly neighborhood that helps our health, helps our metabolism, helps our healing, 
um, helps our immune system, lowers, it also helps to lower inflammation, but a kind of a relatively unsung function of gut health, our gut bacteria is that they text message our brain regularly. So we now know, and, and I was surprised to discover this a few years ago, that our brain, which is a full of neurons, okay, sort of like the tentacles of a jellyfish, their neurons actually come from our brain and they, they're distributed throughout our body beautifully as our nerves. And we used to think mostly our brain is a one-way street. Our nerves run down and our brain tells our body what to do, move your arm, you know, make an okay sign. But actually mm -hmm. it turns out that our nerves run the other direction as well. So the other direction we always knew, like if you hurt yourself, you felt pain, your brain would feel it. But now we know that even our, the nerves that go down to our gut, our gut bacteria send signals, they text message our brain through these nerves the other direction. So with some of these text messages, the bacteria is instructing the brain to release hormones that are associated with our mood, release more serotonin, less depression, more elevated mood, release dopamine, more sense mm -hmm. of reward, more contentedness, release oxytocin. This is a big surprise. Do you know what oxytocin does, Gabby? Have you heard of tell oxytocin? Me. Please tell me. I have heard okay. of it. Yeah. Oxytocin is a social hormone that your brain releases to make you feel elated, really, mm -hmm. really great. And, and, and you know when oxytocin is released, for example, when you say that you saw your friend you hadn't seen in six months, when you see them and you give them a hug, okay, or mm -hmm. a family member at the airport when you're meeting them, and, you know, like you run up there and you give them a big hug, everyone feels really great. That's your brain releasing oxytocin. The visual, the seeing your friend releases this feel-good hormone, and you feel great, like for some time afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. um, another time your brain releases oxytocin is when you have a kiss, not a peck on the cheek, all right? But when you have a deep French kiss, you have this incredible brain flooding of oxytocin. The other time, mm -hmm. and this one you won't forget, that your brain <laughs> releases oxytocin for a few seconds when you have an orgasm. Massive flooding of, of oxytocin is flooding out. Your gut bacteria contributes to that. So good gut health means good brain health. What's good downstairs is good upstairs. Really important to understand when it comes to our health and our gut health mm -hmm. also contributes powerfully to the health of our metabolism. Wow. A lot of people that don't have much expendable income, the thought of mm -hmm. buying healthy, especially when it comes to organic, which we know we should try and do right to avoid the harmful pesticides. I think this immediately kind of deters them from, from doing that food shop when it's a lot cheaper to get the, the multi bag of chips or whatever. So can we on a, a lower income be healthier and happier with our diet? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is what I write about um, in, in my book, which is that when I take you into the grocery store, <clears throat> in the second part of my book, I'm actually um, steering you around, showing you all the things, um, most of which are not very expensive, are affordable, mm -hmm. that you can actually put in your shopping cart that are good for your metabolism, help you burn body fat. Some of it's in a produce section, and you can always look for the less expensive good stuff uh, that's there. It's true, unfortunately, that organic food tends to be a little bit more expensive, but you know what? It doesn't have to carry that organic label, which is a very specific type of label. There are many farmers and many places that actually grow their food in the spirit of organic without using pesticides. They just can't carry that label. If you go to a farmer's market, oh. sometimes you just talk to the farmer and how they grow, do they use pesticides? No, they grow naturally. You know, you can get a sense, look up what organic actually means and do the best you can. Now, here's mm -hmm. a surprise. Most people, um, we used to be told, when you go to the grocery store, only shop the perimeter of the grocery store because that's where all the fresh food is. Avoid that middle aisle because it's cheap, ultra-processed, harmful, health-harmful food. Okay, it is true. There's many of much of that stuff in the middle aisle. But in my book, I write about the foods that you can look for specifically in that middle aisle, some of which you can snack on dried fruit, for example or tree nuts that you can actually find that are actually really healthy. Beans um, are low, very, very low cost foods that are actually really good for your metabolism and good for fighting body fat. And so if this is no longer, you know, sort of somebody on a pedestal telling you you should only eat, you know, um, local farm grown organic 
foods that you pay top dollar for that looks beautiful and cook them like a cordon bleu chef. I mean, I think that that's sort of an ideal, but in reality, and I write about this as well, the cultures with the healthiest eating traditions in the Mediterranean, all the Mediterranean countries in Asia, all those Asian countries, they naturally ate lots of locally grown produce. They Mm -hmm. combined and cooked them in healthy ways. Most of it was kind of seasonal. They ate less animal protein. Okay. And they ate less quantity uh, Mm -hmm. and they tended to have more disciplined eating. And so that's why in a way I call my way of eating Mediterranean. It's kind of a blend of both what I've observed having lived in a Mediterranean and also having an Asian background, but also having lived in Asia, um, I naturally gravitate towards some of those traditional eating patterns. So a big thing that I'm, I'm saying is that very rarely can we invent something brand new that's better than the traditions of tens of thousands of years. It's possible mm-hmm. that we can do it, but I think it's really time for us to respect deeply and try to learn from some of the better habits of our forefather, our you know, our, our grandparents, our grandmothers and great grandmothers of the things that they did because their food tasted good as well. Yeah. Right? I spent nine weeks in India um, recently at the start of this year and I, it came up during I was doing some yoga over there and I was talking to some of the uh, course leaders and they were saying that, you know, where they're from, there's nobody has any money, but everybody can eat well and eat healthily because they're literally living off the land. So, and they right. live to, to be a hundred plus. <laughs> and so, you know, I would say for anybody who's on a budget, of course, we're all on different budgets and it's important mm-hmm. not to spend uh, wastefully in any event for anybody. You know, we have to choose our resources, which include our time and, and our money. Uh, you know, our treasure, but those are our treasures. Maybe a helpful hint is that when you buy food, look for fresh food whenever you can, or look for quality dried foods. Stay away from the ultra processed, you know, colorful boxes with very, uh, uh, you know, with marketing that lures you in with snacky stuff. And, and by the way, I think if you spend most of your time, most of your resources eating healthy food, not only will you feel better and look better, but it actually builds your reserves so that from time to time, because we're all human, you want to eat something that knowingly isn't that great for you, that's going to be okay. You know, what, mm-hmm. what the problem is really to move away from that repetitive, habitual uh, sort of cycle that seems impossible to break where you're always reaching for the chips. You're always reaching for, you know, something that comes in a box and that has, is filled with artificial flavorings and, um, and chemicals and all the things that are not so good for our body. Yeah, I still think as well, we're kind of paying the ramifications of like 90s diet culture as well, you know, when it was like the Diet Coke break and looking like Kate Moss was the sort of trend that kind of heroin chic was, uh, you know, for many not very attainable and and just also the the massive fear around fat. So everything had to be low fat, which usually equals processed. Yeah, I know. You know what? I actually thought a lot about this as I was writing. There's a section of my book where I talk about body size. And I do think that, you know, there's a very long incoming movement now against body shaming, which thank goodness Mm -hmm. that we actually have. But I want people to also understand that good health comes in all sizes. And we're all born to have different sizes. And that's that actually is truly genetics. Um, And so my book, I talk about the analogy. You want to see the fittest people on the planet, the people who are the most fit of anybody alive. All you have to do is to look at the Olympics. The Olympic athletes come in all shapes and sizes. You've got the tiny gymnast. You've got the long, lanky uh, javelin uh, throwers. You've got the really very solidly built weightlifters. And all of these people are at the top of their game. They're as fit as they possibly can be. So that just shows you that you can be really, really fit at any body size. And if you want an extreme, and this is, I write about this as well, it's a little bit of a surprise. It turns out that sumo wrestlers who were three or 400 pounds and mm-hmm. obviously very, very round. Some of those sumo wrestlers are super, super fit as well. So all you have to do is to look at the athletic world to look at this idea that fitness comes in all different sizes. In American boxing, 
there are 14 weight classes where this is another sport where weight becomes really important. You've mm -hmm. got like flyweight always to all the way to heavyweight to heavyweights, 250 pounds or more flyweight, I think is like 120 pounds. And these are people that are either right, rather, rather slight and lean versus people who are really massive in their build. There is a world champion in every single group. And just like the Olympics, there's a gold medalist in every body type. And that's, I think, what's a very important message for people to understand. Look to some of the heroes of fitness and you'll realize that regardless of what your body type is, you can fit into a better category without having to look like, you know, the, the most petite fitness person um, that's kind of glamorized in the media. Right. And just want to touch upon this real quick. I still think we need to dispel the myth that like healthy food doesn't equal tasteless or rabbit food. You can eat tastily without it just being, you know, dry lettuce and boiled vegetables, which again is just this myth that a lot of people think. Yes. Yeah, so um, eating is part of the human tradition. And among the things that we do associated with food is to relish and savor our food. That's mm -hmm. why recipes were developed and passed down over generations. That's why we have restaurants. And the other thing that we do with food is we share delicious food with our community, our family, our friends across generations. You know, I think that this is all part of our humanity. And I think that as we reach out towards better health when it comes to food, and if we want to actually not become dissonant with our own instincts of eating and try to impose artificial ages around our behavior, which by the way, only increases our stress. You know, if we want to kind of chill out a little bit, our food must taste good. I like to cook. Mm -hmm. um, I love food traditions. So I think it's really wonderful that we can take, for example, the 150 foods that I write about in Eat to Be Your Diet, and I include recipes that are inspired by my own style called Mediterranean. I actually cook these in my own kitchen. Um, and there's so many more things that you can actually do. And, and to really begin cooking food again, I, you know, I think it's time to rediscover the joy of food using those ingredients and the, and the recipes that allow us to come back to our own humanity. The more we become regimented and extreme and put ourselves into these robotic patterns that we can't sustain, the further we get away from our own human nature. And I think, you know, part of the whole idea of living a balanced life, trying to be happier with our own existence, is trying mm -hmm. to come to that point of balance where what we want to do is actually in harmony with who we are and, and, and what we know is actually good for us. Mm. Final question. I ask every guest to set us some homework based on the theme of the episode. So in this case, what is a simple, actionable first step that we can take when it comes to eating to beat our diet that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? Yeah, you know, we can we can actually do something very, very simple, probably one simple step that will make the biggest change almost immediately is to don't snack after dinner before you go to bed. So it's the you, hardest thing to do. <laughs> you know, it, it might be hard yeah. at the beginning. But yeah. Actually do that food journal and figure out what you're snacking on and when you snack and how much you eat, just so you're mm. aware of it. You're, mm. you know, you're reflecting back to me that as if it's this huge uh, enterprise to undertake. I will put a bet and I'll be happy to come back on to this podcast to okay. um, discuss with you or go offline and we can talk about you know, once you actually journal and realize what you're eating after dinner mm. and and how much you're eating, and then looking back on it to say, you know, was that really worth it? Did I need those fill in the blank? You know, mm -hmm. was that so important to me? Could I eat first less of it? And then could I actually cut it out? Because, you know, a lot of times it's instinctive, reflexive, or stressful eating. You know, I, I think that that's part of it, if, just to first reveal what you're actually eating after dinner. So if you want to take it one step backwards, one simple thing to do is take a journal um, mm -hmm. to record what you're eating after dinner, just if you're, if anything, to see what you're actually eating and, and then see if you can uh, cut, out, cut that out. So that would be one homework assignment that I think would be worthwhile for everyone to do. The second thing, <clears throat> you know, I think that would be really sort of a simple thing to think about is that if you are 
like many people in the world and you drink coffee or tea, if you can actually not flavor it, not put added sugar into it, okay, um, mm -hmm. and swap out dairy for like a nut milk, if you use something in it, that will actually allow those very popular beverages, tea or coffee, to become even healthier for you. Tea contains polyphenols that activate your metabolism and build your health defenses. Coffee contains chlorogenic acid and many other helpful bioactives that help burn harmful extra body fat. What we want to do is to um, have those in its purest form that is not doctored with substances like added sugar, artificial flavoring, and sweeteners that mm -hmm. actually derail our, our metabolism. So that's another thing. I know these are not the easiest things, but I think mm -hmm. that they're simple, concrete steps that people can take with them to know that th this is something that you might be drinking coffee already. You might be drinking tea already. Oh, well, let me try this without. And again, yeah. these are incremental steps that can be useful. And cow's milk, just a splash of regular cow's milk, because, you know, we English, we love our black tea with milk. That's yeah. that's not, we're not getting as many benefits as we could. Well, this is actually something really interesting. Tea contains polyphenols. And those polyphenols will actually be absorbed into your body, through your stomach, into your bloodstream when you drink tea. When you actually put uh, cow's milk in, the dairy fat will actually form tiny little soap bubbles in your tea. And each soap bubble will, can, will trap some of the polyphenols. So what happens when you drink tea with milk in it, the soap bubbles actually kind of just tumble through your digestive system without being absorbed. So you will get some of the polyphenols, but you'll actually get substantially fewer polyphenols than if you drank it without dairy milk. Now, if you like the kind of the feeling of having something milk in, in your tea, if you use a nut milk, an almond milk, for example, um, any kind of milk, uh, soy milk, it can create a similar type of flavor profile um, of your tea uh, without actually dairy fat. So I, I don't discourage people from enjoying tea. And I do know that there's a hallowed tradition of putting milk uh, in your tea. Use less milk or swap out the dairy milk for a nut milk. Those would be little tips to actually get mm -hmm. some um, get the benefits. And by the way, drinking some tea is better drinking than no tea. So if you're, if you're somebody who's really addicted to your dairy and your milk, you know what? I'm still happy that you're drinking tea. Wow. I mean, to put this into context, I had 10 pages of notes and I think I've asked you maybe a handful of questions because I've just been riffing with you. It's just been so interesting talking to you today. Thank you so much. To find more on you, the website is drwilliamleespellli.com. You're yes. on Instagram, Dr. William Lee. Uh, on your website, there's a metabolism mini course, I noticed as well, which is sort of complements the the book, Eat to Beat Your Diet. Yeah, so I've been, you know, first of all, anybody can come to my website, sign up for my free newsletter. One of the things that I do as a researcher, I'm receiving, I'm discovering, I'm curating, and I'm getting out information about food and health that people can use every single day. So if you want to sort of get a stream of information from me, just come up and sign up for my free newsletter. Now, for people that really want to dig a little bit deeper, <clears throat> I've really had the pleasure of doing these global masterclasses. And one of them is a metabolism uh, masterclass, as well as a eat to beat uh, masterclass, where I talk about all the different dimensions of my research and practical discoveries uh, and actions that you can actually take for better health. Um, I do teach courses. So for if you want to really dive uh, deep into metabolism, I do a metabolism mini course. If you want to go real deep into health, I do a four-week um, uh, intensive online course. I've had thousands of people take these courses, and the feedback has been really great because what it does is it teaches everyone how the principles that's informed by the new science of food as medicine um, mm. and, and apply them to their own body in their own preferences so they can take away and adapt to their own lives and to their families and friends as well, something concrete, something tangible, and they actually all feel better for it. So I invite anybody to come to my website, drwilliamleeli.com, follow me on social, and um, you know, hope to stay in touch. And by the way, I'm, I'm very yeah. happy to have you come back and have a further conversation with you um, on, on, your, on your notes.
on on my nights. Oh, on my, I thought you meant on my night snacking. Because <laughs> I am going to try and kick that one to the curb. Eat to beat your diet. It's a really fascinating read and all the advice you give is great. And I think it's really cool as well. You actually, with these 150 different ingredients, you actually explain the why. So it's like, we all know blueberries are healthy, but like this is the why in terms of what it's actually doing to your body. So yeah, I cannot recommend that enough. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thank you again to Dr. William Lee. I really do recommend you picking up a copy of his book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, Burn Fat, Heal Your Metabolism and Live Longer. It's just one of those manuscripts that you can go back to and go back to when you feel like you need a prompt to get back on track with your food or just for some inspiration even on cooking up some healthy dishes. It's all in there. And a big thank you to you for listening to another episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. Now for the important housekeeping. Just stay with us for another minute if you can. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewees. The contents of the podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The primary healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. If you found this episode helpful, make sure you subscribe and leave a review, please. And to find and follow us on social media, if you don't already, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. Please do take care, guys, and I'll see you on the next one. I'm off for a green tea and a pear. Bye for now.